Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. My guest this week is Chris Shiflett, who's best known as the lead guitarist for the Foo Fighters, and also has several Americana-style solo records, as well as his own podcast called Walking the Floor, which he's done since 2013. Chris is a super thoughtful guy, and we cover a lot of ground, starting with how music created his social consciousness as a young kid, and how playing music and traveling exposed him to other perspectives that helped evolve his own political identity which he refuses to stifle in response to calls to shut up and play. Chris and I are both pretty progressive, and we have a lively debate about whether the Democratic Party is still an effective vehicle for real change. When Bernie Sanders, who Chris supported in the primaries, is labeled a radical for supporting policies that are mainstream across the developed world, it shows you how far the goalposts of U.S. politics have shifted to the right. Chris has a great perspective on all of this, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's start the show. Chris Shiflett, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) You know, so often this is The Politics of Truth, and one of our missions on this podcast is to talk about the intersection of music and politics. And that can be... Warren Haynes last week talking about the Christmas Jam and all the great philanthropic work he's done over the years. It could be me talking about pediatric cancer because of the journey I've had with my daughter. Often, though, it can also be a band taking a stand, an artist taking a stand on an issue, and that can be very divisive. Think of the Dixie Chicks or think, I mean, there's so many examples. Think of Chris Stapleton like a few days ago said something that wasn't even remotely radical to me and got a lot of blowback. Like so often they say, shut up and sing, right? That's the retort. Shut up and sing. Just shut up and play. But what happens when the current events are at our doorstep? You know, I shouldn't dwell dwell on this, but I feel like every day I think about, man, why is this happening? The politics are now at my doorstep. So why can't I speak out? Right. Well, I think when people say, I think, you know, like you talked about that thing of shut up and play, you know, we all hear that all the time. If you ever, you know, say anything political, you get shut up and play from a bunch of people. But I think what people really mean by that is shut up and play unless you're saying something I agree with. You know, I mean, that's sort of, the I think, the reality of that. So, you know, there are like, kind of like strict margins of what's acceptable as far as like political discourse. You, you know, you could go out and go rah, 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 America. Um, you know, rah, 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 war. Yay, yay for the war that we're in or whatever. And nobody's going to give you shit about it. You know, that's the reality. But if you, if you speak out against American foreign policy or American domestic policy or whatever, all of a sudden you get branded, you know, as, as uh, 
whatever. You know, nowadays you get branded as a traitor or whatever, but, um, and people tell you to shut the fuck up. But I mean, to me, music is so central to sort of my political evolution from being a totally like my parents were, you know, I grew up in California. My, my dad was a, was a teacher and my parents met in Santa Barbara in, in college, you know, forever ago. So they were both pretty like left wing. My dad was real left wing. My mom was, you know, but nowadays would be considered radically left wing, but you know, in the seventies and eighties, it was just like a regular Democrat. So I sort of grew up around that mindset, you know, so, but I wasn't political growing up. So like the music I listened to, whether it was like my dad's Bob Marley records informed my political thinking and informed that sort of thing, like pushing back against the establishment. I didn't know what the establishment was, you know, like, or like clash records or something that had all this, all these politics in them. And I, I didn't understand any of that stuff, but it, but it sunk in and these ideas sort of sunk in so that when I was a little older, I was in a band called No Use for a Name in, in the in the nineties when I was like I guess about twenty-five or twenty-six or something. I went, we toured Europe for like seven weeks. First time I'd ever been there. And it was like punk rock band. So you're doing all these interviews with these radical European dreadlocked, stinky punk rock kids that like it made me really insecure because they all knew so much about politics and they knew so much about our politics. And I didn't know anything about politics. So I got kind of defensive about it. And I can remember I came home and I was having a conversation with my dad about it. And I was like, man, fuck all those people over there. They they just have superpower envy. And I remember my dad just went, man, come on, buddy. And he sent me, he sent me a a book called like Chomsky for beginners or, you know, something. And I I still have it somewhere. And it was just a bunch of excerpts from Chomsky's writings. And that was like the moment for me. It was like the combination of traveling and, and, and being exposed to other cultures and then reading Chomsky just opened up my world. I had this realization like, oh, fuck, I've been lied to my whole life. You know, I bought into this fantasy version of what we are and what our government does. And then, but the reality is very different, you know, and it's, and it, you have to sort of, you have to balance those things. And, and that's the thing that bothers me probably the most about, about being sort of shit on for your political views is like, you have to be able to say, on one hand, there's the American people, right? There's my countrymen from all over this, you know, this huge country that we live in with this like incredible, you know, um, quilts of differences, you know, all these different cultures here. And that's fucking great. And we can love that. We can love American culture and the sort of art and the music and all the stuff and just the people. But at the same time, you have to be able to say like, I can be critical of my government and that that's okay, you know, like that we should all be critical of our government or hold them, hold our government to account. Holding your government to account isn't shitting on the country. It's not being, you know, you're not bad mouthing your country. You're, it's, it's the opposite. To me, it's the most patriotic thing you can do. We got 42% of the country are going to support Donald Trump and anything he spoon feeds them. If he says the sand on the beach is ice cream, they believe it. Sure. And then there's the cynicism in our culture. And I love The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I loved it. But you kind of saw it there. You know, that was maybe not the tip of the spear of it. But it's just, we developed this culture over the past 30, 40 years of just being cynical. Do you feel like that has something to do with the rise of Trump? 
Well, I think it goes back further than that. I mean, I think if, you know, the, so the sort of cynicism creeping in, not, I wasn't alive for it, but I think like, you know, maybe you could look like the Vietnam War into, into Watergate. I think all that stuff contributes to the cynicism of it all. But I think you have to look at the common ground of Republican and Democratic policy over that same period of time. Well, basically, you know, I was born in the early 70s and 71. And if you look at like my lifetime, look at quality of life for working people in this country over the course of my lifetime. When I was born, we had a pretty strong labor movement still. As that's eroded, you know, wages have stagnated. Productivity has gone through the roof. A little bit later, we had, you know, in, in the mid-70s, late-70s, through the, through the 80s, and, and definitely accelerating in the 90s, we have the, the deindustrialization of this country, globalization, and people losing their, their jobs. We used to have a, you know, solid manufacturing base here and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, the cynicism is one part of it. The anger and frustration is at, like, it doesn't matter who's in office. My life gets harder. It gets harder for me to get by. You know, I have to work more and get paid less. And my quality of life is worse than my parents, you know, for the first time in, in a long time in, the, in this country. That's the part that I think you really have to, have to look at because, you know, people, people that I don't agree with politically are still victims of the same issues that we all are. In my mind, it, it, these things are impacted by that, like I don't agree with the hardcore Trump supporters about who they're blaming for, you know, their their lot in life, but they're not wrong that like life has gotten harder. They might point the finger at the wrong people and look look to the wrong people for solutions. In my mind, but they're not wrong to be angry. I get where the anger comes from. The anger's there, you know, a, across the board. I think we have to. That's one of the big things that drives me nuts with with talking to. You know, the sort of rank and file Democrats that in, in, in my life and you know, my friends and family and people I live around here in L.A. is like we've all been trained to just blame the other side and never look at our own side's culpability in this stuff. Like the Democrats, modern Democrats are equally to blame for the state of the world as the modern day Republican Party. And I'm sort of thinking of pre-Trump here, you know, and that's the danger to my mind of this whole idea of like, we just need to go back to 2016. If we could just go back to 2016, you know, everything is going to smooth itself out. Well, it overlooks the fact that the decades leading up to Trump getting elected are the thing that made it possible for him to get elected. I mean, that's why you, you see these the last, you know, whatever, four or five years, the amount of energy that that uh, that the Democratic Party establishment and their allies in the mainstream media have put into destroying Sanders and his ideas. And it's, it's heartbreaking because to go back to what you said a minute ago, you, you referred to yourself as moderate. I'm sorry, Sanders is a moderate. That's a moderate. There's nothing radical about, these are like ideas that would have been just milk toast Democratic Party ideas, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And that's how far our party has moved to the right that he's considered a radical. Like what if instead of destroying him these last four or five years, what if the Democratic Party had, had got on board with those ideas and had realized, you know, we have to change, we have to radically alter what we're doing and how, you know, we have to radically alter our policies. And there I use, I see, I'm, I even use the word radical right there. I shouldn't, because it destroys those ideas. You know, don't call them radical. They're not radical. But what if they had gotten on board and supported Sanders through this whole thing? Where would things be right now? You know, 
it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, he lost the primary, so he couldn't have won and he would have gotten, you know, he would have lost the general. But we don't know that. We don't know what would have happened if they hadn't have spent, you know, five years destroying the guy. Because you got to remember, that came from the Democratic Party. I mean, the Republican Party would have done their part, no doubt, but they didn't have to. Because that all came from the Democratic Party establishment and the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC and all the, you know, liberal media, right? They're the ones that did the dirty work on Sanders. And so now what do we have? We have, we have Biden and, and Kamala Harris, who nobody is excited about. Like, do you see Biden bumper stickers anywhere? I don't. Actually, I got, I got a text from a, a friend this morning who said he's, there's three Biden signs in, in his neighborhood. And in 2016, there were zero Hillary signs. And this is red, a very red county in North Carolina. Right. So and North Carolina is kind of up for grabs now, isn't it? It's, I'm, I am skeptical, but yeah, it seems like it. Did North Carolina go for Obama? It went in 20, 2008. And then Romney won in 2012. Romney won in 2012. Interesting. Trump won in, in 2016. And Trump won by three points, three to four points. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but my sense in just talking to people is I don't get the sense that there's a lot of like rah, rah, rah Biden enthusiasm. I think there's a lot of like, we got to get this Trump dude out of office. No, I, I agree. Not excitement over Biden's policy ideas. And when you talk to people, I mean, what are Biden's policy ideas at this point? We have his long, long record in the Senate and that we, you, can, you can sort of base your opinions of the guy off and then what he did as vice president. But, but what, what are they going to do now? I, I mean, I don't know. You're right. I think what you said is right. This whole election is about removing Trump. And it literally is that, that attitude that anything is better than what we have now. And that's what I would push back on is anything is not better because as much as people like to lionize the Clintons and Obama and all the rest of them, it's their fault ultimately that we have this guy in the first place. And not just their fault. It's they share equal responsibility in my view with Reagan and Bush senior and you know, W and all the rest of them and Carter, and you can go way back. It's an equal responsibility because destroying working people's ability to get by in this country has been one of the most bipartisan <laughs> accomplishments of our government in the last 50 years. Now, Chris, as an unaffiliated North Carolina voter, I will just not push back, but we'll say that there is a, a counter narrative, and historians are all about narratives, that it was the Newt Gingrich Rush Limbaugh and the rise of right-wing talk radio in the 1990s that have given us help to provide the Republican Party of today and led to situations like Mitch McConnell saying the day after Obama was elected that his job was to make President Obama a one-term president. And so really, Obama never had a shot. He had two years, 2008 to 2010, and he spent it all on Obamacare. I thought we were supposed to view it as just his first hundred days. It was it was until the Republicans won the, you know, had that big wave election in 2010. So, but listen, I agree with you largely on that. But there are a few narratives that kind of sure. But I would push back on that a little bit. So, what was Obamacare? Where did Obamacare come from? Obamacare was a Republican idea. Came out of like yes. I think the Heritage Foundation. It was Mitt Romney's plan. It was Mitt Rom. Well, ultimately, he was Bob Dole. It was Bob Dole's plan. Right. Okay. So sure. So. That tells you a lot about the Obama administration, right? In my view, 
if the idea behind Obamacare had been, let's give every American a, a tube of Neosporin and a packet of Band-Aids, like if that had been Obamacare, the Republican Party still would have lost their shit and called him a Hitler and talk about death panels. And it would have been the exact same thing. Like we're seeing right now, we just were told for the last four years that you have to... Um, you know, you have to nominate Biden because Sanders is too radical and they're going to tar and feather. Republicans will tar and feather him as a commie and all this stuff. And so we, so Biden gets the nomination. What do Republicans do? Tar and feather Biden and Harris is being captured by the radical left and their communist socialist agenda and all. So it doesn't matter what the Democratic Party does. The Republicans are going to hit them over the head with everything they can. The idea that the Democratic Party compromises their ideas to, to, to gain acceptance by the Republican Party is absurd. That's not why, that's a, that is something Democrats like to tell themselves so they don't have to be confronted with the fact that their party is captured by Goldman Sachs and Silicon Valley and Lockheed Martin and Chevron, just, you know, in the same way that the Republican Party is. I mean, they might be a slightly watered down version of the Republican Party, but that is essentially what they have become. I mean, look at, look at, the Democratic Party now with like the, you know, the Lincoln Project and you turn on MSNBC and you see a bunch of, uh, you know, former Bush administration people on there, you know, and this is who the Democratic Party is listening to. It's, it's as if they've become the Republican Party. I always hear people say, oh, it's the, like, the Democratic Party is, you know, like the Republican Party of uh, Eisenhower. No, they're like the Republican Party of George W. Bush at this point. And that's, to me, very risky. You know, the progressive wing of your party is sort of the only element that has enthusiasm in it. And you just constantly shit on those people and constantly tell them that it's their fault and it's the Bernie bros that ruined it for Hillary and blah, 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 all that nonsense. There are zero Republicans, apparently. I don't remember which poll this was. They're going to wind up voting for Biden. So all this embrace of former Bush administration officials, it doesn't seem as a strategy. I don't think that that's working. Trump has near total support in the Republican Party. He is the Republican Party, right? They are now Trumplicans. But the size of the party has shrunk. Okay, so the center, from our conversation, the center has, over the past 40 years, moved to the right. The center it keeps moving to the right because Democrats keep trying to compromise with Republicans, but Republicans will take their compromise and will not give anything to Democrats. I don't believe that the Democrats are trying to compromise. I think the Democrats, by and large, do the bidding of their donor base and then try to sell it to the people as like, well, what do you expect Obama to do? He was young and he had to fit in or whatever nonsense. I think that that's, a, I think that that's an excuse. I think Obama was a gradualist trying to make good change on the fringes. But yes, he was not a radical leftist by any one stretch of the imagination. The problem is, like, I don't expect Obama to be a radical leftist. I don't expect him to be Ralph Nader or somebody. You know, I, I don't expect those sorts of policy ideas out of him. What I do expect or hope for, wish for, is that the left would have held him accountable the way that they hold Trump accountable, the way that they held Bush accountable. That's one of the biggest problems. They just let their foot off the gas when a Democrat comes into office. It's two different standards of accountability when it should be one standard of accountability and you apply it to your side, you apply it to the other side, you apply it to everybody. This is, these are our ideals and we fight for them. And you don't have that here. Um, so who, who did you support in the primary? In the primary, I was very much a Sanders supporter. Um, I actually had the opportunity to go out and play at a couple of his rallies. And it was, it was, uh, it was really, it was interesting, really cool to sort of 
you know, if you if you watch MSNBC, you'd get the sense that, you know, that Sanders supporters are these angry Bernie bros and it's this divisive, you know, shitty, very white campaign. And then you go out there. For me, you know, I got to meet a lot of people that worked on the campaign. I got to meet people in the crowd and sort of see it and see what it was. And it was couldn't have been more different than the way it was usually described. But I didn't get the sense that it was even at least as far as the people in the crowd, that, that it was as rigidly ideological as you might think it was. I think it was more of like, it had a real hopeful vibe to the whole thing, at least the, the, the events that I was at. People just wanted a, a something different. We could recognize that, that the status quo has not been working for a long time. And we're just like, look to Sanders with, with a lot of hope. Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Would you like to reveal who you're going to vote for? I mean, I'm going to vote for Biden. And, but I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter. I live in California. Like he's, he, Biden's going to win. I can vote for you and it's not going to impact the outcome. It's, I appreciate your vote. I appreciate your vote. <laughs> your confidence. Maybe I'll vote twice and, uh, and my second vote will be for you. Oh, well, okay. But uh, no, you know, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm going to vote for Biden. I, like, I don't view things kind of as hopelessly as I think a lot of people do. I think for a lot of people... Like when Sanders, for people that, you know, share my politics, I think people, there's a lot of disheartened progressives out there because Sanders didn't get the nomination. I view it a little bit different. I think that there's a lot there to build on in the future. And the fact that, that, that the Democratic Party and the media spent so much time and energy destroying the guy and destroying his ideas, and still, he almost did it. You know what I mean? Like he almost got there. That to me is like a testament to the strength of those ideas and something to build on for the future. Like, I, like there isn't a single, there were what, 26 people running in the, for the Democratic nomination? Nobody got treated like Sanders. Nobody. He was, he was ridiculed and, and shit on at every turn and still, you know, filling up arenas and, and getting a lot of votes along the way. So there's, some, there's something there that'll be built on for the future. Yeah, often these movements, they're just building and building. And now we see Sanders' ideas have kind of, with all the insurgent Democrats defeating establishment Democrats in primaries that we saw this year, I do believe that Sanders' ideas are becoming more mainstream. And, and Progressives need to stop thinking of our ideas as radical. They're not. They're only radical sort of in context of the current system that we have which is in itself extremely radical. I mean, you know, Wall Street bailouts, that's radical. Take these people that destroyed our entire, the world's economy and then you give them 
more of our money? That's a radical idea. Free college? It's not so radical. I will tell you, for all the people who claim that the left is socialist, that we are on the verge of a socialist South American dictatorship, all you need to do is read the history of Coca-Cola to see it's corporate socialism that built American democracy. Corporate socialism built American democracy. And Trump has done some of it with bailouts to farmers on a, a trade war that that he, he instigated with China. I mean, and so what I'm basically saying is none of it's really socialism. Free college is not socialism. Free medical care is not, that's not socialism. And it's just been labeled, terrible labeled. Defund the police fits on a bumper sticker. You can put it on a piece of poster board and hold it up against your head when you're at a rally. Terrible slogan. See, here's, here's where, why I blame centrism in general for exactly what you're talking about. Oh, wait, wait, hold, hold that thought. I'm going to say one line here. I read a tweet the other day that said centrism is violence. And as a centrist, I was so insulted. But go ahead, say what you're going to say. Well, that's, that's the thing. When you neglect areas of society, huge areas of society, like people's ability to make a living or, you know, uh, black men and women being abused by police forever. And now we just see it because everyone has an iPhone. You don't know what the end results of that are going to be. And I'm not supporting like rioting or destroying small business. I'm not on board with any of that stuff, but you create the conditions that sow the seeds for chaos, just like you're sowing the seeds for chaos by, by not taking care of of your people. And that's what leads to Trump getting elected. So the solution is to not let things decay to that point. And that to me is the fault of centrism. That's centrism accepts that it makes it worse. You know, what's not centrist, the walking the floor podcast. (laughs) God damn right. But there's something there for everyone. Much to the chagrin of my listeners, not centrist enough. <laughs> but, but let me say this. Okay, we started The Road to Now in 2016. You started walking the floor in 2013. I'm an elder statesman of the podcasting community, sir. Right. So why did you start the podcast? Um, and how has the industry changed for you in the past seven years? Well, it's really interesting to watch things um, you know, grow and podcasting explode. I mean, and it was already in 2013. Like I was felt like I was late to the game, you know, and I, I was putting out an album that year. And, um, one of the guys at, I was putting it out through a label called side one dummy. And, and my buddy, Joe Sib, who's one of the owners of, of side one suggested that I start a podcast sort of as a, as a way to promote the record. Was this West coast town? Uh, no, it was actually the one before that. It was called, um, it was called, uh, all hat and no cattle. It was like a covers record, like all honky tonk cover songs. Initially I was like, fuck, what should I, what should my podcast be? So I really just kind of modeled it on Mark Maron's podcast. I mean, if you look even still, it's just the format of it. It's just what he does, <laughs> you know, it's same, same layout. Um, so then I had to find people to interview. And, and, and one thing I thought to do was try to interview as many like Bakersfield sound, um, you know, the sort of people from, from that world as I could, as I could get to. And then also just interview people I knew or, you know, people whose names I had in my phone book or whatever. So it was like, you know, Nick from the hives and I was able to get John Doe's phone number and reached out to him and and he agreed to do it. That was one of the first ones I did. And then I went up to Bakersfield and interviewed Red Simpson, 
Um, you know, eventually I got to interview Merle Haggard. That was amazing. Um, and I interviewed Dwight Yoakam, um, pretty early on that was, that was incredible. And then little by little, you know, it took a long time to sort of like, um, to get established in the sense of getting to know people, you know, all the, the publicists that work with the artists that you want to reach out to. And, and I always wanted to keep it mostly a sort of like Americana country focus. Um, I mean, it's been amazing when I, when I look back at the sort of the, the people I've gotten to interview over the years, like I, I forgot that I interviewed half of them. And then I look, scroll through the, the episodes. I'm like, Oh fuck, that's right. I did interview Rodney Crowell. That was pretty badass. So yeah. Foo Fighters. So let's talk about this for a second. That's a heck of a side gig to be in the Foo Fighters. I mean, you have this amazing solo career. Your solo music is incredible. I'm so excited to be introduced to it here recently. And it is just, I love it. I love your sound. You are more in the Americana realm. And I say that as a compliment, being in the Americana realm myself. Uh, Foo Fighters, that's a different animal altogether. How did you meet those guys? And how has that impacted the music that, that you've been writing personally? Well, you know, before I was in Foo Fighters, I was in a band called No Use for a Name that was like a punk rock band. Best best name ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. Um, so I was doing that, you know, for, for a few years there. And, and like, that was the first band I ever like made records and, and, and toured with. And, and so when the opportunity came up to audition for the Foo Fighters, I mean, I, the Foo Fighters were like my favorite band of that moment like we would the Foo Fighters were the band that that our band would always like beg our booking agent to get us you know get us dates on their tour or whatever which never happened but I love I love the Foo Fighters so when, when the opportunity came up to, to audition I you know I, I, I leapt at it well how did that come up like how did that opportunity come up and I remember having a conversation with with my buddy Bill about it and and saying something to him like see if you could get me an audition with the Foo Fighters. And, and he was friends with, with a lawyer that worked at the same law firm as Foo Fighters lawyer. You know, it's like LA stuff. Sure. So, um, so through that, I got like my name on the list, basically, for the, for the audition. They audi- auditioned a bunch of people. I just went in cold and, and, and auditioned and, and then wound up coming back a week later and auditioning again. And, and then the next day they told me that I got the gig and played my first gig that Friday and then left like, Monday for tour. It's just like, boom. We played with you guys at the Hangout Fest. I remember that. Okay. Here's what I remember about that day. Watching your set and then CeeLo was held up in New York. His flight was canceled, something like that. He was on his way. So you guys did a set of all covers. Yes. Culminating in Darlin' Nikki, the Prince classic Darlin' Nikki from Purple Rain. And CeeLo walks out and finishes the song with you. First of all, it was one of the greatest sets of music. Sure, the Foo Fighters set was great. That, that was awesome. Yeah, but this this unexpected, magical, truly, right? You, like you said, you can't make this up. Uh, about one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed in my life. And I sat on a road case on the, stay, on the side of the stage, just happened to you know wander out there and, and had a, an incredible view of the whole experience. Well, that, I mean, really, honestly, that's the thing that I love about the Foo Fighters and, and, and something that, that, that I realized pretty early in, in playing with them is that, um, like, I don't think I've ever been in a, another band that could have done that, that would have been willing to do that, to go out there. Like, you know, we know a bunch of covers, but like, 
not, we don't know him well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like a well-rehearsed thing. And the fact that, that the Foo Fire, like Dave and everybody in the band are willing to go out and like, let it all hang out warts and all is it's as exciting as it gets. You couldn't tell that you guys, you know, I mean, it, it was genius. And I'm trying to remember you did the darling Nikki, you did a Tom Petty song, I believe. Um, I can't remember a lot of the songs you played. I can't, I'm not bringing them in. Whose idea was that? I mean, where did that come from? I mean, that's so spontaneous. Our tour manager, Gus, is from down around there. And I do remember something about like him coming into the backstage like, hey, man, the promoter said CeeLo's like going to miss his set and wanted to know if you guys would, you know, fill in or whatever. And I'm pretty sure there was like, 50 grand in cash in a paper sack involved. I didn't want to say that, but I, I, I did hear about the, whatever the, um, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the exact amount, but I think there was a sack of cash involved, um, to sweeten the deal. By, by the way, musicians, just so the people at home, musicians always get paid in hard cash in, in bags, like in the old, old West money bags. That's, that's just how. Yeah. Preferably Chuck Berry style before the gig or I ain't coming down. Right. Right. And the bags have dollar signs on them. That's right. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's how that happened. And I do, um, you know, that festival is right on the water there. And I, I recall literally walking off stage and jumping in the ocean, I think. So on your show, on Walking the Floor podcast, mostly musicians and writers. Yeah, yeah. Jay, every now and again, a, a writer, um, but mostly musicians. So Thomas Frank... He is someone that you have had on your show three times. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about him. He's a, he's an historian. And what, what is it about him that kind of says, you know, this is a music podcast for the most part, not completely, but, but I like this guy, this history, this politics, you know, this fascinates me. I want to have this guy on. Yeah, I mean, I, I figure that, um, and this is not based on any kind of science or anything, but I just figure that most people who listen to my podcast aren't familiar with somebody like Thomas Frank and, and his ideas, um, or somebody, you know, another writer that I recently interviewed was Matt Stoller. I, I know that those episodes are a tough sell to a lot of people who just don't want to hear anything about politics. Do you get that feedback? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I get that feedback by looking at the numbers, you know, and right. if you're talking to an Americana artist or country artist or something, you're, you're going to get more people listening. I think, I think, I think that politics is an immediate turnoff, even when people might agree with you. You know, I think politics scares people because I think most people don't really understand policy at all. You know, most people don't really follow it. It's almost impossible to follow because think about it, like the, our government is vast policies that come out of federal government or state government um, are, you can't keep track of it all, the minutia of it, you know, and how exactly it trickles out and affects the world. So it can be really off-putting because I think people are just, you, you talk about politics and all of a sudden you're, people I think generally are kind of outside of their element. When I interviewed Matt Stoller, there was a quote in his book, Goliath, that I thought was so great. Like, we need to be comfortable being wrong. I'm paraphrasing that and probably butchering it, but like, you know, it's okay to not know what the fuck you're talking about and, and, and evolve and change your mind and be proven wrong. 
I want to be proven wrong. I'm cynical as fuck about politics. I want, I, I would love somebody to come along and, and, and prove me wrong. And my politics change all the time based on new information and putting things in a perspective. Maybe you didn't really understand them before. And, and that's, that's okay. I mean, we sort of live in this time of like zero sum politics where, you know, if anybody ever said something that you disagree with, then fucking deplatform them and cancel them, blah, 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 all that, you know, hysterical stuff. I, I'm not on board with that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong more than I'm right, and, but I'm, I'm trying. One of the sort of core reasons why people are turned off by politics at all, because I mean, maybe on some level they recognize they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And, and unfortunately, like that's, that is like, w when you don't really make an effort to follow current events, you are easily swayed by propaganda. And we all live in a propaganda shitstorm all the time. You know what I mean? Everything, if, if all you're doing is letting things sort of like drift in on the zeitgeist, then you're never getting at the heart of the matter and you're easily swayed. Are you concerned with the future of live music at this point? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, live music, of course, is going to come back at some point. Um, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Do you have any reservations as far as touring goes and bus living and catering? The first thing that I thought about was, you know, you think about your day to day on tour and like, you know, interacting with, with people and you walk down the street to get a coffee and somebody, you know, comes up and says, Hey, I'm coming to your show tonight. And can I take a selfie and all like all that stuff's, how's that going to work now? Are you, are you going to be comfortable getting hot pitted by one of your fans for a selfie? <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, everybody else is experiencing the same thing, too. I mean, I think there is, I mean, I, and I, yeah, I'm just going to put my hand up and say, I don't know how this is going to shake out. I mm -hmm. have no idea. I hear a lot of people who are much more well-informed about the touring business than me um, that are hopeful that touring will come back uh, online next summer. So that's, you know, something to, to hope for. I also hear people talking about, you know, reduced capacities uh, for venues, which, of course, is has a huge financial impact on on bands when you think about it's like you know the touring doesn't get less expensive it's probably going to be more expensive now because everybody's going to hit the road when shit goes back online and then think about the fact that like you know as a musician you spend your whole life if you're if if you're like the luckiest guy in the world you get to a point where you're playing to full venues and now we're all going to have to go back to playing half-filled venues. I mean, you know what that's like. I know what that's yeah. like. Playing a half-filled room, it has a corrosive effect on your band. Yeah. So there's that, you know. Like, but at least we can blame it on something now. Exactly, yeah. No, we would have sold this shit out, bro. We would have sold. Man, in, 20, in 2019, man, this place would have been packed. You know, then there's also the thing of like, you know, industries don't let crises go to waste. And, and, and you've seen a push real early on. Um, to redefine, you know, from promoters how, how bands get paid. And, and, um, and I think that is really the great unknown to see how that impacts everybody. No more guarantees and everybody's basically going out on a door deal. And I think bands like the Foo Fighters, you know, big bands that have a, a real strong fan base will weather these, these storms. You know, it's, it's the up-and-comers and the mid-level bands um, you know, think about if you're a, a young artist, the only thing I heard so many people talk about the only way to earn a buck in this world for a musician anymore is on the road. That is right. So I don't know, man. It's, it's scary times. Smaller crews, higher ticket prices. If you recall at the very beginning of this thing, 
one of the first things that happened was they said, well, we're not going to have shows above, I forget what it was, 500 people capacity, or maybe it was even 250 people capacity. But I remember that was like real early on. And I remember thinking like, well, that's not going to affect my solo career. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I played like 100 people a night if I'm lucky, <laughs> you know? So, so you're going to be out on the road before the Foo Fighters. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's all gone out the window now. So, yeah. H have you guys uh, entertained or you personally entertained any drive-in shows? I haven't been offered any. So, um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's been probably all kinds of ideas that, um, that I haven't heard about as far as like what to do with, with foos. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't, I really don't know. Do you want to hear my best case scenario for music based on no evidence or facts? Yes. Okay. Uh, vaccine, January, February, goes to frontline workers, trickles out to the rest of us, March, April, May. We're on the road in August. I love it. I'm rooting for your idea. <laughs> based in nothing. Based in nothing. That's I made that up in my own head. Let's go with that then. Yeah. You know, um, I know you interviewed Kendall Marvel recently, and, and um, he told me something funny recently. He was like, yeah, I got a gig. I'm like, oh, what's your gig? He's like, I'm playing at a hot dog restaurant. And he goes, I I'm not getting paid, but I get free hot dogs for life. And like, that is like, what better, you know, that like says everything you need to know about being a musician in, in 2020, man. Free hot dogs for life, kids. Sign up here. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Chris Shiflett, host of the Walk on the Floor podcast, amazing, incredible solo career, and of course, side gig, Foo Fighters. Thank you for being on the Politics of Truth. I hope we can do this again. Yeah, thanks for having me, buddy. I hope I see you out on the road somewhere soon. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. <laughs>